from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the Centre for European Reform podcast. I'm Octavia Hughes, the CER's comms and events assistant and sometimes podcast host. This episode is of the type where some of you have been in touch to ask our experts questions on all things European policy and international affairs. With me today is our director, Charles Grant. Head of Foreign Affairs, Ian Bond, and Senior Research Fellow, Luigi Scazzieri. Today, we'll be covering some really topical questions, unpacking the first round of the Turkish elections and looking ahead to the runoffs, examining how the Commission might be swayed on industrial policy, and considering the looming Ukraine-NATO question. Luigi, you were on the podcast two weeks ago with Sanem Adin Duzgit. And I think it's fair to say there was some quiet optimism in that podcast. There was a sense that Erdogan's 20-year presidency might be coming to an end. Now, as we record this episode on May 23rd, people following the Turkish elections are probably feeling slightly less hopeful. In the first round of voting, Erdogan's right-wing party, AKP, retained control of the parliament. And while neither candidate received the majority of the presidential vote, Erdogan did outperform expectations with a 49.51% share. A runoff has been set for this Sunday, which will decide Turkey's future. Estelle from Lyon asked, has Kilic Dairolo got a chance in the second round? Yeah, thank you very much. Interesting question. The short answer is that it will be very difficult for Kilic Dairolo. So as you mentioned, Erdogan came very close to winning in the first round whereas uh, Kilicari was some way off. There was a third candidate, Sinan Oan, which gained 5% in the first round. He's now been eliminated. So the second round is really about retaining existing votes, plus gaining some of the votes from Oan's supporters and from non-voters in the first round, of which there were around 8 million. The momentum is very much with Erdogan because of several reasons. So first of all, his campaign and his supporters have been energized by exceeding expectations in the first round. His own party and its allies have already won the parliamentary elections, so they have a majority in the parliament. And Oan actually endorsed Erdogan yesterday, meaning that at least quite a few of his supporters are likely to vote for him. So all this means it's an uphill battle for Kilic Dorolu. The opposition's results were below expectations that could demoralize some supporters. Plus, even if some of Oan's voters may not want to vote for Erdogan, it will be difficult, I think, for many of them to vote for Kilic Dorolu, given that he has the backing and in some ways has essentially been endorsed by Turkey's main pro-Kurdish party, which is something that's anathema to hardline Turkish nationalists. Still, I think in the coming days, and, and we've already seen this happening, Kilic Dorolu will doubtlessly try to, to persuade both Oan supporters and non-voters to vote for him. It's worth noting that he has switched to what is a very hardline nationalist rhetoric since the first round to appeal to Turkish nationalists. And in particular on refugees, he's used much tougher language than before, promising to essentially kick all Syrian refugees out of Turkey immediately if he was elected. 
the problem or one of the problems with this strategy is that there's no guarantee that adopting such a hardline strategy to attract nationalist votes is going to work in attracting nationalist voters. But at the same time, there's a risk that in doing so, he may lose some of his original supporters who, who may dislike this turn towards nationalism. So the, yes, there's still a path to victory for Kilic Kareli, but it's a very narrow one. Great, thank you. And now if we imagine an Erdogan victory, what does that mean for Turkey? And would you consider that the end for Turkish democracy? I think whatever happens with the second round of elections, what they will have shown is that the framework in which they take place is one of intense competition with a playing field that's tilted towards the government. And I don't think that that basic framework would change if Erdogan won re-election. I don't think there's reason to think that democratic freedoms in Turkey would improve. But conversely, I also don't think that they would necessarily worsen. Thank you very much, Luigi. I'm going to turn to Charles now. Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, COVID and Putin's full-scale invasion of Ukraine have all put industrial policy at the forefront of many European policymakers' minds, and it's become somewhat of a buzz term. It seems as though some of our biggest friends and rivals, like the US and China, have become less friendly to open markets and international rules. Macron, it seems, is keen that the EU follow suit with all his talk of strategic autonomy and third powers. We did see the EU relax its state aid rules in response to the IRA, but some officials, perhaps particularly in Germany, are sceptical that the impact of the IRA on the EU is as big as it's been made out to be. And they're also sceptical of this new French-style industrial policy. So with that in mind, Steve from Brighton would like to know, who's winning in the commission? The industrial policy advocates or the liberals? And perhaps you could also go into a little more depth on who is on either side of this debate and what they would like the commission to do. Thank you, Octavia. Very good question. So I think the short answer is the liberals are losing and those who believe in a French-style industrial policy are winning. But of course, the true situation is more complicated than that. The main reason why there's been a bit of a shift in the EU's approach to industrial policy is that the world has been changing in ways that make everybody see that the French were, if you're a liberal, less wrong than they were thought to be before. How has the world changed? Well, certainly the COVID pandemic made everybody aware of the dangers of dependency on supply chains that all end up in China, as was the case, for example, with uh, protective equipment that we needed or during the COVID emergency, or some of the drugs also. We were dependent on a limited number of suppliers in other countries. Then the war in Ukraine made us realize we were dependent on, on Russian energy. Some countries were too dependent on Russian energy. And then more recently, again, people have worked out that for some rare earths and very rare minerals, China has almost a quasi-monopoly of the production and processing of these rare elements. So everybody's very worried about becoming over-dependent on one or two or three suppliers. So everybody wants to make sure their supply chains are more secure, meaning not putting all your eggs in one basket, not getting everything from just from one country. It doesn't mean you stop importing, it means you import not too much from any one supplier. That's the sort of shift in the intellectual climate. On top of that, the Americans are introducing their own industrial policy. We've seen this in their CHIPS Act and their Inflation Reduction Act, pumping hundreds of billions of dollars into green industries, which they haven't really done before, which is their own industrial policy. The Europeans are happy that the Americans are taking climate change seriously, but rather unhappy that investment may be sucked out of 
Europe and into the US by these subsidies. Though opinions differ in Europe as to how much of a problem the IRA really is, as you mentioned a moment ago, Octavia. Some people in Germany and indeed some people in Brussels are not convinced that the IRA is quite such a threat as it appears to be. But certainly in France, many people believe it's a huge threat to future investment in the EU. And then just finally, two final factors on the, the sort of growth of industrial policy in the EU. We've seen the British obviously left the EU a few years ago, and they were always the chief opponents of French-style industrial policy and the chief advocates of free market economics. And in their absence, there are still people or countries that believe in free market economics, such as the Dutch, the Danes, the Swedes, the Baltic countries, and some others, sometimes the Irish, but they are without a large country to champion them as with the British out of the way. They are less vocal than they might have been otherwise. And indeed, opinions have shifted in these countries. So the Dutch are not such believers in free markets as they used to be. They now see the French were at least partly right on industrial policy. And the final factor is, as mentioned, the French are just very influential in the EU. They don't run the EU, of course. Lots of countries compete for power and influence in the EU. But the French are quite close to Ursula von der Leyen, the Commission president. Thierry Breton, the commissioner in charge of industry, is a very influential player in Brussels. And the French are very good at pushing and shoving and getting their way. So for all these reasons, We've seen a great growth in industrial policy measures in the last few years and also in the pipeline in the coming few years. For example, just to mention three or four or five examples to make my point, we have these important projects of common European interest whereby the EU suspends state aid rules to encourage the development of new technologies like batteries or hydrogen or, or microchips. We've seen the Single Market Emergency Instrument Act pushed through by Thierry Breton, which will allow in a crisis the Commission to ban the exports of some key goods and key manufactured goods. We've seen the investment screening rules agreed a few years ago so that if Chinese companies or other companies from other countries want to invest in the EU, we have to screen whether or not that's a good thing or not. We have the Net Zero Industry Act, which is about encouraging import substitution. And we have also measures to try and reduce the state aid used by foreign governments to encourage their companies to buy companies in the EU. And finally, just I mentioned, because it's a new thing starting to go through the work soon, there's going to be new measures supported by the French to allow the EU to ban the export of key technologies that could endanger European security if they get into other hands. So this would be export controls, which could affect, for example, investments in China. So there's a lot going on, and there's not a lot of resistance to these measures. Obviously, the Liberals are worried about some of them. I think everybody now uses this buzzword de-risking and Ursula von der Leyen uses it and Jake Sullivan, the US National Security Advisor, uses it. The idea that you don't decouple from China or other countries, you de-risk, you reduce the risk of over-dependence on them. And who can really disagree with that? It's a perfectly reasonable idea, de-risking. But the risk of de-risking too far, the risk of going too far towards these industrial policy measures is you reduce competition. For example, recently Northvolt, the battery maker from Sweden, sort of said to the German government, we won't build a huge new electric vehicle battery factory in your country unless you give us tens of billions of euros of subsidy. And the German government said, we better give you the money. So they're giving a huge subsidy to Northvolt. So there is a danger that if governments start picking winners, competition is reduced, businesses grow fat and lazy on the subsidies that they need, and they stop being world-class companies able to compete internationally. So there is a danger of going too far. And I'd say that the jury's out at the moment of whether the EU is going too far or not. But certainly, as speaking personally as an economic liberal, I do worry that the industrial policy may have gone a little bit too far. How is the EU responding to the American Inflation Reduction Act? The European response has essentially been to relax state aid rules so that countries with lots of money spare, like Germany and France, can pump subsidies into their own green industries to match 
the American Inflation Reduction Act. That's not so much fun for countries like Italy or smaller countries that don't have the financial resources which would be able to do that and pump in so much money. So the way that those countries, the smaller countries and the southern countries with less money, were persuaded to accept the reduction of state aid rules was the promise of something called the Sovereignty Fund, which von der Leyen has spoken of and Thierry Breton has spoken of and the French government has spoken of. The Sovereignty Fund would be another kind of European level financial mechanism, rather like the recovery and resilience facility that was helping countries caught by COVID with giving them extra money, it would borrow on the markets and invest in pan-European projects, particularly with a focus on the southern countries in the EU. But guess what? There isn't enough money to really give us a sovereignty fund. So the EU's not going to have a sovereignty fund. The French say they want it. The Commission would like it. But the Germans and the other North European so-called frugal countries will prevent a sovereignty fund being created. So I don't think they're going to be ones, which does mean that you have a risk that competition in the single market will be distorted by rich northern countries pumping lots of money into their economies, subsidizing green technologies, and the poorer countries and the southern countries with less money losing out. And that certainly could be a distortion of competition. So there are certainly dangers in what's happening with industrial policy. The strange mixture of national and European measure has not removed the dangers of holes appearing in the single market, in my opinion. Thank you very much. Finally, Ian, let me turn to you. Ukraine has for a long time wanted NATO membership and the securities that come with it, namely the commitment from all member countries to protect each other if attacked. We saw NATO agree that Ukraine could join in principle all the way back in 2008, but it was never given a formal path to membership. Then when fighting broke out with Russia in 2014, the US and other members made it quite clear that they wouldn't allow Kyiv to join, as this would mean an immediate conflict with nuclear-armed Moscow. Since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, President Zelensky has pushed the NATO question and last September formally applied for membership. NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg has emphasised that all countries agree on Kyiv's future inclusion, but the current focus is on Ukraine's ongoing conflict with Russia. And then a few days ago, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz said that Ukraine will not be joining in the foreseeable future. President Zelensky was, of course, invited to the NATO summit in July, which is taking place in Vilnius, Lithuania. Jan from Rotterdam would like to know if there is a chance that Ukraine will join NATO at that time. Great. Well, thanks very much. I mean, the short answer to the question is no. It's quite clear that there is not a consensus for offering Ukraine membership in Vilnius. And it seems to me that that's rather a pity, actually. It seems to me that NATO is at risk of making the same mistake that it made in Bucharest in 2008, which is to think that leaving Ukraine in a sort of a grey area of Europe is better than taking it in. I mean, in a sense, there are better arguments this time than there were in 2008, but they're still not great arguments. So, I mean, it seems to me that Ukraine probably needs to look at alternatives short of NATO membership. And there are a variety of these, but I think I'd probably highlight a couple. One which has been discussed quite a bit is the possibility of Ukraine being what's been sometimes described as a hedgehog state like Israel. So a state which is not part of a formal treaty of alliance with anybody, but is extremely well armed and well protected and possibly has some kind of guarantee from one or more other countries that they will keep it equipped to a good standard. I think the phrase that the Americans use in terms of what they do for Israel is that they give it a qualitative military edge. So that is to say, even though Israel 
can't compete numerically with all of its Arab neighbours who historically have been hostile to it, although rather less so these days. Many of them have got peace treaties with Israel now. But the US always made sure that qualitatively, Israel could outcompete any of its neighbours or all of its neighbours collectively. So maybe you go down that route with Ukraine. Now, an objection that's been raised to that is that what ultimately gives Israel its security, even though nobody wants to talk about it, is the fact that it has nuclear weapons. So it has a deterrent of its own, and none of its neighbours is likely to put the existence of Israel under threat if they know that that could result in a nuclear weapon landing on them. Now, Ukraine is not in that position. And I've heard some arguing that the only way that the hedgehog strategy really would work for Ukraine would be if Ukraine had its own nuclear weapons. And nobody really wants to go down the road of more and more countries in the world deciding that the best way they can guarantee their own security is by having nuclear weapons. So that's one thing. So then the second thing that you could do is you could have security guarantees that were given by a set of countries, let's say smaller than NATO, but some NATO member states could offer security guarantees to Ukraine of the kind that Article 5 gives, saying, right, you know, if you are attacked, we will come to your aid. And I think that's possible. The difficulty with it is that NATO has a command structure and a force structure, and that means that if a NATO member state is attacked, you have everything there ready in place to be able to respond. Now, I mean, even in those circumstances, it would probably take some days before NATO forces started to move towards a country that had been attacked. But in military terms, that's still pretty quick. So if you're going to have some kind of ad hoc coalition of the willing that say, right, we are prepared to offer a security guarantee to Ukraine. First of all, it's got to include at least some of the big military powers in Europe. And when I say in Europe, in the continent of Europe, so that would include the Americans. The Americans seem very unkeen on doing that, would probably have to include at least the French, the British, the Germans. Again, I haven't heard any signs of great enthusiasm for that. So that's an issue that you have neither a permanent structure, nor do you have offers from a number of the major military powers in Europe to come to the aid of Ukraine in those circumstances. And then I think the third problem that's sometimes raised is if you have, let's say, Polish or Baltic states forces in direct confrontation with Russian forces on Ukrainian territory, and the Russians attack those forces of a NATO member state, would that start to get you into the territory where Poland or some other country might invoke Article 5 and say, well, come on, guys, you've got to come and help me. I've been attacked. So I think people are a little nervous about that. And then I suppose there's a third option short of NATO membership, which is relying on eventually joining the EU. And if you eventually join the EU, you get to benefit from the EU's mutual defence clause, so-called Article 42.7, which basically says that if one of the members of the EU is attacked, the others will come to its help with all the power they have. Now, that sounds great on paper, but again, there is no structure to implement that. And so the EU commitment has always been pretty empty. And for the countries in the EU that are also members of NATO, they have made clear, including in the treaty itself, 
that the way they see this being implemented if they were attacked is through NATO rather than through an EU-only operation. And indeed, when Finland and Sweden applied to join NATO, one of them in their sort of parliamentary report explaining why they were doing this specifically said that they didn't consider that Article 42.7 provided a proper defence guarantee of the kind that they felt that they needed. And so that really does leave you with NATO as the best option. But until the Americans have changed their mind, I don't see Ukraine being offered NATO membership. And it certainly doesn't seem likely that that's going to happen at Vilnius. Thanks, Ian. What do you think it would take for the Americans to change their mind? That's a difficult question to answer, because I think this is deeply ingrained in Joe Biden's administration that you don't want to, as he sees it, do something that might provoke World War Three. Now, the way I look at it is that what we have seen so far in this conflict is that Putin has been very reluctant to confront NATO forces directly. There were suggestions early on in the conflict that Russia might attack the supply lines through Poland in particular, which were bringing weapons to Ukraine. In fact, Russia has not done that at all. It has not tried to launch attacks on NATO soil, certainly not of a kind that could be attributed to Russia. I mean, in the past, there have been some sabotage attacks on weapons storage facilities in NATO, but nothing that would be very easy to say for sure, well, that was definitely the Russians. We might have strong suspicions, but there hasn't yet been anything that stood up in a court of law. So I think the Biden administration is actually being too nervous about this. And in a sense, what worries me is that the more we deter ourselves, the more we encourage Putin to do something really stupid that might ultimately lead to a conflict between NATO and Russia. Whereas the more resolute NATO shows that it is, the more so far Putin has shown himself to be cautious about confronting it. Very interesting. Thank you, Ian. And thank you to Luigi and Charles as well for joining me for this week's podcast. And thank you to our listeners at home for all of your thoughtful questions. If you'd like to stay informed on all things Europe, subscribe to the CER wherever you get your podcasts. And goodbye and see you next time. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.